You're listening to Kingdom Ethics, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where faith's deepest values meet the world's biggest questions. This season, we're going to be exploring the lives of great moral leaders, men and women who changed the world. We'll be looking at their lives and their legacies to see how we can apply them to our lives, our times, and our situations. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall. And I am David Gushy. And I'm Colin Holtz. And today we're going to be talking about Harriet Tubman. So that's cool. I know Harriet Tubman. Everyone knows Harriet Tubman. We read about her in elementary school. She did the Underground Railroad and that sort of thing, right? That's all you got? That's all I got. Well, she did a whole lot more than the Underground Railroad. And I'm going to let Colin tell you what he thought was most exciting to learn new about Harriet Tubman. I wouldn't say it's the most exciting thing, but let's start with the most common uh, misconception. Harriet Tubman did not found the Underground Railroad. Um, it wasn't like a not you know 501c3 nonprofit that she that she set up. Um, Undergroundrailroad.org. Yeah, this was not this was not a, a a thing of her creation. It was an informal network that she both relied on and then became a leader within. Uh, absolutely. Um, one of the most interesting things about uh, Tubman is that. She had that early part of her career where she escaped slavery, turned around, went back. Um, but then her career had many more phases. She went on to become a nurse uh, during the Civil War. She was one of the first um, women to lead an armed military expedition. Oh, that's all. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and then after the Civil War went on, emerged as a, a major suffragette. So this sort of astonishing career, and, and something that you said, Jeremy, really stuck out for me. A lot of people have heard about Harriet Tubman in elementary school, and that's because for a really long time, she was considered a sort of nice character for children and not thought of as a brilliant leader of ingenuity, of complexity, of depth who had something to offer uh, adults and people trying to challenge thorny issues today. And that has changed in recent years, and that's one of the reasons she's in this book, and it's one of the things we hope to bring uh, to the fore. One of the things we discovered in writing this book is some of these leaders, they are known, but they're usually known in some kind of very limited safe or sanitized version. There's Martin Luther King who gave a speech about a dream once. That's so superficial, it's laughable. I think most people's knowledge of Harriet Tubman is laughable too. I think that Harriet Tubman was more brave, more tough, more radical, and more of a, of a paradigm of a liberation movement leader than most people have any idea of. One thing to draw a point of connection for me, my first book uh, was on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust, and kind of primal story was Jews are being hunted by the Nazis, and Christians would sometimes, all too rarely, risk their lives to save them. I cannot think of very many instances in which people went back into the death trap of Nazi Germany if they could ever get out. I mean, you just didn't do that. 
So one thing to think about with Harriet Tubman was she escaped slavery. But the idea that one would escape slavery oneself and then say, I'm going back, I'm going back. And so she went back and she got immediate family. And then that wasn't enough. She came back and she got more people and her networks grew. So she became uh, more like a rescuer many times over and not from the perspective of a person who was a Christian rescuing a Jew, but in the parallel, it'd be like Jews rescuing Jews, always at risk of death at any moment and always going back into the into the lion's den time and time again, saving, what was the estimate, Colin? How many did she save? The estimates are really hard to pin down. I think the best estimate is she saved about 70 people, which is lower than a lot of the public presentation, but actually way more impressive than it sounds because you're rescuing these people five, 10, maybe 12 at a time. At the most, yeah. You're crawling through pitch blackness, swamps, fogs. Maybe you have a full moon to guide you. You're not operating with flashlights. You're not hopping in the car and just gunning it out of there. And in some cases, she's literally in the field with people who knew her and would have her lynched if they caught her and recognized her. So 70 people is not to diminish her. 70 people is an amazing number. Trying to escape from slavery was obviously punishable by every kind of torture or or death. Leading others to escape from slavery made you one of the most wanted people that there was. Doing it multiple times made you the ultimate outlaw. If Harriet Tubman had been caught, she would not just have been killed. She would have been tortured, and then she would have been killed. I'm sure of it. The bravery of Harriet Tubman just on that part of of her life is breathtaking to me. So this is not just a cute story for children or a parable about why slavery is bad and some people are brave, but Tubman had this incredible courage. Can you give us an idea of where that came from? What motivates her? to go back once her family is safe, once you've got your immediate family out of Nazi Germany, why do you return to this hell? The documentary evidence about Harriet Tubman's inner life is very limited. In fact, I would say it was harder to, to tell her story than most other stories because the, the information was a little bit harder to come by. Biographies written long after the events and so on. But as we tell the story, pretty much everybody who lived through slavery, the indignity, the violations of any kind of basic human decency and human dignity, it's the baseline. Uh, That's so wrong when you experience it. And she experienced it from from an infant age, the breaking up of families, the slave labor of small children, the abuse and the beatings for arbitrary reasons or no reason, the violence. We talk about an incident in which uh, she was uh, very badly hurt outside a store, you know, by a, uh, a white man. So you start off with this indignity. This is wrong. It's blazoned on the hearts of every slave. And then she appears to have had a kind of a sense of calling that God was against slavery. God was for the slaves. God wanted the slaves to be free and that she had the calling to lead not just herself, but others to freedom. Could we say that she was a early liberation theologian? I think that's fair. It was not an elaborate theology, but it was clear that she believed God was on the side of the oppressed. Uh, Remember that scene, Colin, where she prays either that her slave master would have a change of heart or that he would die. And we also know she believed, along with the more radical abolitionists and liberationists, that that slavery was essentially, uh, it was such a criminal thing that any means necessary to resist it 
were appropriate. So like she knew, at least knew of John Brown, or did she know John Brown? Yeah, Yeah. she knew John Brown. And apparently, though she didn't participate, she supported John Brown's rebellion in the late 1850s. She befriended John Brown well after he had been involved in an attack on slave owners. She at least involved, at least aware and probably involved in some of the planning of his attack on Harper's Ferry. She was sick. I believe was the common line attack actually took place, which might have been the truth. She, because of that injury that they had mentioned a, a little while ago, she would was regularly sick, even in well into her adult years. She might have been sick. It might have been an excuse, cold feet, or trying to avoid uh, something that she decided wasn't the right path. But she was absolutely closely linked with John Brown. And it is one of the interesting and challenging parts of her legacy. It is that fearless quality in liberation thought that says, well, really it's violence in self-defense. And it raises two questions, I think, and we talk about them in the book. One is about the right to self-defense. The other is about the wisdom of violence as a strategy. And she clearly felt, in her case, they both had slaves, abolitionists, had the right to use violence against the slave system, and that in the face of the brutality of slave masters, it was the only possible way. I want to go back to this question about what motivated her. I believe it was abolitionist Thomas Garrett who said that he had never encountered anyone of any color who heard more clearly God's voice in his or her life. And Tubman had this visceral, direct connection, a sort of sixth sense, and it led to not only a call, but to guidance during these rescue missions. She would change paths based on a sense from God of danger and where safety could lie. She had this incredibly close connection to God, and it both called her out of a situation, gave her the bravery to venture into the unknown, and also kept her going back. I think she had a nickname, the Moses of her people, and that's a really important important term because it, it speaks not only to her, but it speaks to the way that these biblical stories were re-envisioned and appropriated. A lot of African slaves were handed Christianity, and it was believed that doing so would keep them good slaves, right? This was the white slaveholder theology. And they were given a very literal, single-minded reading of some texts, such as Slaves Obey Your Masters. But then they took these stories and they said, well, here's here's a story about God siding with the Israelites and freeing them from Egypt. Here's Jesus, the liberator of the oppressed, come to save us. And so when Harriet Tubman gets termed Moses, it's not just a term of affection. It doesn't just refer to her rescue. It also speaks to this deep undercurrent of, yeah, pre-liberationist, but it had existed long before it was given an academic name like that. Did Harriet Tubman see herself as participating in this tradition of liberation that she gets brought into with the name Moses? Did she ever see herself in that role? At first, I think she just wanted to get her family out. The biographers make a big deal out of her decision to leave, which is no small thing, because that's the moment in which She goes from being an enslaved person to a a fugitive slave. She can be caught. She can be killed. She can be returned, punished, tortured. That's a big deal. She attempted it once, and her brothers got cold feet and dragged her back. So clearly, this a very scary, momentous decision. 
I think equally important is the moment when she arrives in Philadelphia and she's free, but she's alone. And I think that something very quickly occurred to her that she needed to go back and rescue her family. And then, of course, you rescue your family and you've got your extended family. And then they've got people they care about and other people in the community. And you keep going back. And I think that's that broadening circle of moral concern that eventually led her to the path where she she did perceive herself as an agent of liberation. It is. I don't, I don't speak this language easily, but it is hard not to describe as miraculous uh, Harriet Tubman being able to make as many trips back into slave territory as she did and to come out with that many slaves uh, is amazing. I think it's also interesting to think about what she did during the Civil War. As the Civil War moved along, there were more and more slave escapes. And as the Union troops got in areas, uh, many if they could get away, uh, slaves and families and so on would end up behind Union lines or followers around the Union troops. Somebody needed to care for them and uh, help them, and she got involved in that role, uh, both meeting their basic humanitarian and medical needs. But what I could never have known is that she served as a kind of scout for uh, the Union Army on some raids of like plantations, trying to both find if there were any slaves still to get out and also to say, hey, that's the that's the house down there. Like, you know, go down the river with me and it's over there. And they and she would say, yeah, that's the one you want. They burn it to the ground. And so so this is Harriet Tubman as military figure. We have Moses and jo- Joshua. Yes, yeah, she's Joshua there, too. That's not a safe Harriet Tubman. That's a more militant Harriet Tubman. And I think that's a very interesting part of her story. So in this room are three white men with too much education, wonderful beards. And we agree. We agree. Yeah. What do we need to hear from Harriet Tubman in our context? Well, one theme, it's not only from Harriet Tubman, but it's very much from Harriet Tubman, is that God uses agents of liberation from within oppressed groups, raises them up. It's by no means always about privileged people coming from outside and help. That's solidarity with the oppressed is a virtue for those who are privileged. But it's sometimes by looking for all of those solidarity people, it is easy for us to forget the indigenous, you might say, oppressed people who emerge from within tortured and victimized groups to stand up for their own liberation and rights and who hear God calling them to the most courageous and even absurd acts to uh, affect the liberation of their own people. Three things. One we've touched on a little bit is the use of violence. It bothers most folks in our context, white men, when we look at a Harriet Tubman who's willing to use violence uh, in order to escape slavery. And yet we have no problem with the sort of nice white founding fathers who led a military violent uprising against the British for freedom. The second thing that I think is important is education and intelligence. Harriet Tubman is a brilliant woman. Do you just look at some of what she managed to accomplish? She was brilliant, brilliant. she was inventive, she was complex, Her she was eloquent in her speeches, but she did not receive a ton of education, and so people didn't always think that she was that bright. So I think there's a tendency to look at Tubman and say, oh, well, she wasn't educated, so she's not smart. And for educated people especially, it's a good reminder that while education is clearly important, you see that that's a running theme throughout this book, um, it is not the same thing as intelligence. And I think the third thing is about that legacy. Tubman is the wrong gender and the wrong color to be a hero in America for a lot of people. All right, so to wrap up, 
uh, David is going to read us a section from the Moral Leaders book. Each leader has a section of leadership lessons at the end of their chapter to sort of wrap up their leadership influence. I'll read the topic sentence, at least, in the section on leadership lessons for Harriet Tubman. Faith can drive both moral evil and moral greatness. There was slaveholder religion and there was slave religion, especially the liberation of slave religion. Supposedly the same faith, very different outcomes. Secondly, recognize the extraordinary. Third, leadership can start small. It started small with Harriet Tubman and then it grew. Fourth, people will often underestimate you, especially when you are seen as marginal in a context. And, and then last, keep going. This is one of the favorite Harriet Tubman quotes. If you're tired, keep going. If you are scared, keep going. If you are hungry, keep going. If you want to taste freedom, keep going. And Colin, we're going to give you the last word. What do you think we missed in this brief conversation about Harriet Tubman? We talked a little bit about the sense of call, about her relationship with God. There's a pivotal moment, I think, where she describes God actually sending her back, saying, go do this. And she said, no, 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 not me. And she reports hearing the words, no, it's you I want, Harriet Tubman. Those call moments are really pivotal in a lot of the lives of moral leaders. I think for Tubman, it's very clear that that is what set her on this path to becoming extraordinary. Very good. Colin, David, thank you. Thanks, thank you. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you would like more information about the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, please visit us online at ctpl.mercer.edu. If you'd like to know more about the work and ministries of the voices you heard today, you can find us at our respective websites, revjeremyhall.com, davidpgushy.com, and colindholtz.com. If you'd like more information on great moral leaders, pre-order David and Colin's book, available October 16th of 2018, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, 14 People Who Dared to Change the World. Thank you. We'll see you next time.